Welcome to the My Data Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Schwartz. In this podcast, we take a deep dive into the biggest questions surrounding our personal data. All of us who use network technologies leave data trails behind us in our everyday lives. This is data about us that describes who we are and what we do. In every podcast episode, we talk to a guest who is involved somehow in shaping the future of personal data management. From technology to business, policy, culture, ethics, privacy, GDPR, AI, big data, we get into all of it. And we talk about how these big questions will affect you and your data. This week, we have an interview with Miko Hupinen. Miko is the Chief Research Officer at F-Secure. F-Secure is a Finnish cybersecurity and privacy company that's been working in this space since 1988, which, side note, makes it almost exactly as old as the internet. Miko is a globally recognized security expert. He's published his thoughts and research in places like the New York Times, Wired Magazine, and the Scientific American, and he's also given quite a few TED Talks. Personally, I'm a fan of Hoopinen's Law, which is, whenever an appliance is described as being, quote, smart, it's vulnerable. I should mention that normally our My Data podcast interviews are recorded and published within a couple of weeks, but this week is an exception. This is an interview that I recorded with Miko at F-Secure's offices in Helsinki about a year ago, in August of 2017. We decided to pull it out and publish it here because Miko will be a keynote speaker at the My Data 2018 conference at the end of August in Helsinki. To see more of the My Data 2018 program or register for the conference, you can go to mydata2018.org. That's mydata2018.org. And now, here's the conversation with Miko. Can I get you to introduce yourself and tell me what you do for work? My name is Mikko Hyppönen. I am the Chief Research Officer for F-Secure Corporation, and I am the oldest employee in this building. True story. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what F-Secure does? F-Secure is the largest data security company in the Nordics. We've been around for almost 30 years, and uh, we are a security software company. So we build security software for computers, for mobile phones, for tablets. We do a lot of consulting for large companies. And the software solutions we build include things like antivirus and anti-spam solutions. But right now, the single biggest source of our revenue is actually operators and telcos. Almost half of our revenue comes from the largest telecom companies on the planet. And we, we provide these solutions to them in over 200 countries. What brought you to work in digital security? I was born here in Helsinki area in Finland, and I've lived all my life here. Um, I've never lived anywhere else. And I guess the reason why I ended up doing what I'm doing today is my mother. My mother is called Rauha, and Rauha means peace in Finnish. And my mother was born in 1945 as the Second World War ended, so she was named Peace, Rauha. And she started working with computers in 1969. That's 1969. That's almost 50 years ago. She started working at the Finnish Valtion Tietokonekeskus, which is the state computing center. Which means when I was a, uh, a small boy, me and my brothers, we were playing around the house with 
punch cards and punch tape, the kind of stuff that was used with the old mainframes in the 1970s. And which, which, of course, meant that then in the 1980s, we were one of the first houses on the road to get a home computer, which was a Commodore 64, one megahertz, 64 kilobyte system with a floppy drive. And I still have it today. And, and that is the computer I spent my childhood with. And me and my, my brother Ari, we, we sold our first commercial software, which was written on Commodore 64 when I was 16. And um, one thing led to another and it became a career for me. I joined this company, uh, F-Secure, in 1991, 26 years ago. And I've been working here ever since. So I started at a very early age and I don't actually see any signs of myself stopping working with computers. Can you tell me a little bit about what this first software was that you built? In the early days, the, the first programs I wrote for Commodore 64 were, of course, games, uh, including a game series of, of this adventure game where you're trying to escape different rooms, which was actually fairly nice. But um, then I started doing more technical stuff, including um, turbo loaders, because it was really slow to load software in, in those old days. It would take you up to half an hour to load a single piece of software. So you could, you, we tried to accelerate that. So we created turbo loaders, and I, I created a series of those and, and sold some of that stuff. So I guess that's where it really started for me. And was there a community of people, like you mentioned your brother, Were there other friends and stuff who you felt like you were connecting with over technology at a young age? And what were those communities like? Back then in the 1980s, we didn't have networks which we could use to find each other, but we had real-world networks. So we would reach out over traditional mail to other hobbyists in Finland and actually even hobbyists in other countries, especially in Germany. And we would mail floppies, five and quarter inch floppy disks over mail to exchange software. And of course, pirate software as well, you know, copy games, which is what you used to do in the old days. But um, I especially remember these PC shops downtown Helsinki where people would gather close to the main bus terminal and people would gather there around the com computers they had for sale and we would just hack away at those machines and copy games and, and meet each other and sometimes we would like exchange addresses and go and meet each other we would take the bus and, and, and learn from other hobbyists it was quite different back then because we had no internet we had no networks and so then what was your first entree into digital security Was it something that you felt worried about, or what brought you there? When I started studying, um, computer viruses had become, you know, a thing. People people were just getting aw becoming aware of the first PC viruses that were there. And I remember during my studies, many of my uh, colleagues would do like you know write essays on early computer viruses. I wasn't interested at all. I thought it's kind of lame. I, I was interested in in, in completely different things at the time but then I needed a place to 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 do part-time work I wanted to work and study at the same time so I ended up getting recruited by this guy called Risto Silasma to be employee number six at this small startup and this is the company that I joined back then Risto is still the chairman of the board for this company he's also nowadays the chairman of the board of Nokia so he hired me back then in 1991 and I'm still here 26 years later And what are your general feelings about digital security and privacy? 
do you feel like it's hopeless to have any privacy online? And what are some things that you think people can do about it if they want to try to secure their information? We really only have two big problems to solve. Uh, the problem of security and the problem of privacy. And, and they might seem similar problems, but they're actually quite different problems. Um, especially in Finnish language, people sometimes think they are the same thing. In Finnish, privacy is tietosuoja and security is tietoturva. They sound very similar and people think it's the same thing, but they actually are, are almost the opposites. And in many ways, we probably have already lost the war on protecting our privacy. It might already be too late for our privacy because our lives are now open books on the internet. But I refuse to accept that it would be too late to fight for our security. And if you speak to, I don't know, we have, I mean, this company has now a thousand employees and, and sometimes I speak with, with uh, new hires who might be 22 or 23 years old. And then I realize that these guys, these girls, don't remember the time before the internet. You know, the web became a thing around 1994-1995 they were small children or barely born so so for them it's always been the norm that you know everything is on the internet for them it's i mean google has always been there wikipedia has always been youtube has always been there they, they don't know of time before the internet and for them the concept of privacy is completely different because everything is online, everything is global, everything is saved forever. So we can try to protect our privacy, but it's hard. And it's hard because the main enemies of our privacy are companies. Companies which don't break a single law when they erode our security. Companies like Facebook, companies like Google, companies like LinkedIn, which is now part of Microsoft, they make all their money out of trying to understand who we are, what do we do, what do we like, what do we think. The better they can understand that, the better they can make business. So their business is collecting our data and understanding it better than we understand it ourselves. And that turns out to be completely legal. And in many ways, I believe that we are we are some sort of guinea pigs or some sort of test subjects because if you look at the history of mankind, there's never been anything like this at all. We are the first generation in mankind's history whose whole life can be tracked from start to finish, whose location can be tracked. There's multiple parties which know right now where you are because you're carrying a tracking device on you right now. And, and, and you, there's multiple parties which know that we are in the same room. And, and this has never been possible before. We don't really understand what this means. So privacy, it, that's a hard fight to fight. I mean, unless you want to give away technology altogether, and we don't want to give away technology. We don't want to even give away things like Google. Like I, I tried living without Google, um, you know, last year or two years ago, something like that. Turns out you can't. You can't. I mean, you can try to avoid some of their services. You can try to avoid Google search and use, you know, DuckDuckGo or Bing or whatever. Um, they aren't as good, but, you know, you, know, you can try that. Uh, but there's so many services they run and so many sites which use Google Analytics and Google uh, services in the background that you don't even know of. And, and then when someone sends you a, f you know, check out this funny video on YouTube, what are you supposed to do? Like you, you either go to a Google service and watch the video or you don't watch the video. So you can't avoid Google. It's too late.
Do you have any feelings about some of the moves to store data locally on servers within certain countries? Like, do you think that actually does anything to enhance security or not really? And I'm also reflecting on the fact that there are more data centers opening in Finland now. This massive shift to cloud um, means that more and more of the data we store and process is not being stored and processed on our own computers. That's That applies to us as private people and it applies to our companies. Everything's being moved to the cloud, which means it's typically moved to a different country, which means it's all under different jurisdiction and different regulations. And this is this is problematic, especially because most of the largest cloud providers are U.S. companies. And companies outside of United States have basically no privacy rights when they store data in the United States. U.S. intelligence has completely legal right to look at my files when I store them in Dropbox or Google Drive or OneDrive from Microsoft. I mean, it's perfectly legal for U.S. intelligence to look at that stuff. And if that's the case, you would wonder why would anybody do that? If they, if they know that whatever I store here can be looked at and it's okay, I mean, I, I can't can't prevent that. You would think people wouldn't do that. But you would be wrong, because that's exactly what people are doing. Um, yes, there are local storage services and cloud services outside of uh, United States. They do exist. They are nowhere near um, the popularity of these built-in services or, quote, free, quote, services, which really aren't free, of course. There is no free lunch. There definitely are no free lunches on the Internet. There are no free cloud storage providers there are no free search engines there are no free you know webmails everything is monetized and and we just have to accept it finland and and many of the other nordic countries have been trying to push for um, data center initiatives in here and cloud storage initiatives in the nordics uh, and and it, this makes sense in many ways one of the the reasons why it makes sense is that nordic countries like finland sweden norway they uh, we, we have very strong privacy regulations it sounds like you brought up the fact that some of the issues are legal so if you're storing something on a us site you're under us privacy laws do you find that when you're looking at solutions to enforce security or privacy do we really need to see the solutions as being more technological or do you find yourself wading into legal territory laws move very slowly we can't really rely on laws and regulations saving us. We see that with privacy regulations. We see that even stuff like, uh, uh, you know, the IoT revolution, when everything's becoming a computer. It's not just your computers which go online, it's your home appliances. And right now we have very little regulation on, on any of that, which is especially um, interesting to see because we have tons of safety regulation on electrical home appliances, but we have no security regulation. What I mean by that is that when you buy a washing machine, to your home, you can be fairly sure that that washing machine is not going to give you an electric shock and it's not going to catch fire because we regulate that. It has to go through certain uh, checks and, 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 you know, confirmations to make sure that doesn't happen. But if it's a smart washing machine, it's highly likely to leak your Wi-Fi password or let hackers in because there's no regulation on that. So we regulate safety, but we don't regulate security. And, and, and the same thing applies to many of the other things. And what this really means is that the consumers have to take responsibility. Regarding privacy, what this means is use encryption. Encryption works. That's why encryption is the best way 
for end users to protect their privacy and in many cases to to also improve their security and the encryption systems that we have available to anybody today are basically uncrackable basically unbreakable i say basically because everything can be broken and i sometimes get questions about this you know i'm i'm using i'm using uh, a hard drive encryption system how hard is this to crack and and uh, i sometimes do the math and show them that, of course, somebody can crack it by trying all the keys. All right? You, you, you try all the keys. Eventually, you will find the right key. And then, you know, all the data is open. But the keys we use are so long that if you try to crack, you know, one email, even if you use all the computers that we have on the planet today, you, you throw every single computer and every supercomputer and just to try all the keys, they will eventually get the right key. But it's going to take you know, 500 million years. The sun goes out after 200 million years. And your files doesn't matter. They don't matter after the sun has gone out, right? Hi, my name is Tem Ropponen. I work for the MyData Conference in particular with our great partnerships. I'd like to remind you that the MyData 2018 conference is just around the corner. At the end of August, up to 800 people will gather in Helsinki, Finland. We're lined up for over 130 speakers in over 50 sessions. Half a dozen side events on the day leading up to the conference. It's a truly co-created conference with people from all over the world gathering to look at the future of personal data, from business, legal, tech, and societal angles. As a listener of this podcast, you'll probably like it. Why don't you see for yourself? Study the program and get your pass at mydata2018.org. We make it happen. We make it right. Now, back to the podcast. So, would you say, from your experience, that there's a certain ethos that defines the tech community in Finland? Like a certain attitude or way of doing things or set of values? And if so, what would those be? I've never thought about the Finnish technology sector to have, uh, you know, in that sense, anything special. I mean, it's just a very geeky culture. It's it's very, I mean, the country is full of very nerdy people. Half of half, half of the time that we spend here is in the middle of darkness. There's nothing else to do than hack away on your computer. But uh, I do think we are very willing to help each other. There's a, some level of camaraderie. Uh, even when you are working with companies or working in the same space, so basically competitors, you, we still, you know, if you're if we're Finnish companies or even Nordic companies, we we would like try to help each other if we can, which is uh, which is remarkable uh, in, in in many ways. Um, it's a tiny country, so so of course that's one of the things that 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 is the background to it. Mm, another thing which probably, especially in in computer security, is one of the reasons why there's so many companies working in in security space in Finland is is the history um if we look at uh, academic uh studies regarding security after the second world war um for example studying cryptography was restricted in most countries around the world definitely most countries in Europe um but not in Finland we've had uh, academic courses on on cryptography and encryption systems already from the 1950s and that's probably one of the reasons why we have a very strong academia 
background on, on encryption systems, which then leads to other security fields. And uh, there's quite a few. There's surprisingly large data security industry coming out of Finland for the country, for the size of a five million people country. Is quantum computing on your horizon at all? And is that something that F-Secure is trying to deal with? And do you think it will kind of threaten current cryptographic methods? There are lots of big things in the horizon. Things like super intelligence made by computers, like artificial intelligence or quantum computing, uh, which theoretically could change everything. Definitely strong AI would change everything because then we would no longer be the smartest being on the planet. We would be number two, which is scary. But it could also be very beneficial if, if, if the super intelligent being would be benevolent to us. Um, quantum computing has the potential, real world potential of breaking every single, well, almost every single encryption system we use today. Um, quantum computing would, for example, make it trivial to factor calculations made with large primes, which is problematic because almost all of the, for example, HTTPS encryption systems we used to do, the kind of encryption you use when you go online shopping with your browser, that's based on uh, multiplying large primes with each other. And quantum computing can just reverse that as easily as it can be done now the other way. And and if that would actually happen, if we would see a quantum computer and an application which would be able to break or or uh, break all RSA-based encryption systems, uh, and there are people already thinking about how exactly would we recover from that. Like if that would become a reality, and it's possible that it becomes a reality, then we would have to recover somehow. And how do we actually start rebuilding from scratch? That's uh, a very interesting problem. Hopefully it doesn't happen anytime soon, but it could happen within within a decade or two. What are one or two things that are a big part of your job that you think people would be surprised about? That they have misconceptions about how this stuff works? Every single advice you've ever read about how to pick up a good password is wrong. Every advice ever given in any newspaper article or anywhere on the web, they always tell you the same things and they're always wrong because they always tell you that make sure to pick up a unique password for every service and make sure it's really long and full of random characters and numbers and punctuation and make sure it's different for every site, completely different, and make sure you don't write it down anywhere. Like, how the hell are you supposed to do that? Like, how on earth are you supposed to like, pick up something that you can't remember and then don't write it down? So... That's not going to work. And the reason why we keep hearing this same old wrong advice is that this was good advice a long time ago. Back then when people had three passwords or five passwords. But you know what? You don't have three passwords. You have 300 passwords today. I have 300 passwords today. So whatever you do, don't do that. Um, what, what I recommend doing with passwords is using a password manager which means you don't have to remember password. The manager creates the passwords for you. They are really long. They can be 200 characters long, full of random gibberish, which you would never remember, but you don't have to remember it because it remembers it for you. And if you're not using a password manager, then I guess the next best thing is to write them down. And this is not a sin. It's not a sin to write down your password. Yes, it would be better if you wouldn't have to, but how the hell are you going to remember them if you don't write them down somewhere? And the difference in writing them down or not writing them down is that if you don't write them down, then you have a bad password or you have the same password everywhere. 
And if you have a bad password, it can be cracked by someone from, I don't know, Mexico City. But if you have a good password and it's written down on a piece of paper which is in your wallet, the hacker from Mexico City can't get to that piece of paper because it's in your wallet and you are not in Mexico City. If someone can steal your wallet, well, of course, then they can gain access to your password. And that's bad, but they shouldn't be able to steal your wallet in the first place because you have money and credit cards in the wallet anyway. Uh, so so uh, another thing which is not a sin is using the same password on sites that you don't care about. Like if you have, I don't know, if you register to you know, read news from a local newspaper and you need to have an account for that. If someone else steals that account and then they can read news as you, that's not really a problem, right? That's not a big problem. But you shouldn't use the same password on your bank or on your VPN or on your corporate accounts. So you can use poor passwords on the sites that you don't care about. And you can use the same password on those sites. But you must not use those on sites that you do care about. Has your knowledge about threats to digital security ever tempted you to try to just like ditch all technology and get off the grid? Or has that never been something that you think is interesting or feasible? I love the internet. I love the internet. I love everything about the internet. I, I think it's the greatest thing we've built during my lifetime. I think it's it's going to be the thing which will be remembered from our generation. I mean, imagine a history book 200 years in the future they're going to write about our time the beginning of the 2000s what are they, what are they going to say like what happened during these years our years the internet happened this is like the thing number one right it's going to be I mean, the first time the mankind could connect internationally to everybody could connect to every, almost everybody could connect to everyone else um, and, and, and that's the biggest thing of course the internet brought downsides as well like the fact that criminals don't have to care about borders anymore but clearly the upsides of the internet are much bigger than the downsides. And the, the last thing I want to do is to scare people away from the internet. Because I, I love the internet. I think it's a great resource. Of course, we need security so people can enjoy the, 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 the internet to, to the fullest. So the way I think about our work is that we are enablers. Like our work enables people to do what they want to do on the internet. They need security so they can do what they want to do. So that's what we're trying to do. Computer security people are... We have a bad reputation of always saying no. Like, whatever you want to do, you go and ask your IT department security guy, like, hey, can I can I install this program? Can I connect to this... Can I open the firewall, this port? And they will always tell you no. No, you can't. No, you can't. Get out. Go away. So I've decided that I'm not doing that. Every time someone asks me for permission, I'm always, every time, saying yes. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you may. Yes, you can install that. Yes, you can connect there. But there, there is the but. There has to be the but. So we are enablers. We will work to let you do what you want to do. But we will going to do it so that it's secure and safe when you do it. We're doing a lot of um, penetration testing work today. And penetration testing is, is, is really interesting because these are the test attacks that we do to try our customer security systems. So basically they hire us to break their security. And, and what makes this so interesting is that most of the company has no idea that someone is trying to break in. So the typical way we do these penetration testing engagements is that uh, you know the CTO or the CSO or maybe the CEO of the company hires us, and they are the ones who know about it. 
but no one else does. Like the end employees have no idea, the IT department has no idea, the people looking at their firewall logs have, have no idea that they are under attack. And when they detect that they are under attack, they don't know it's us. They think it's real attackers. And our mission is typically to try to gain access to somewhere where not, we're not supposed to gain access. You can imagine a bank hiring us. Like, can you gain access to, the, to our mainframe, to you know, account information? Are you able to move money? And then we try to do that. So basically, they're asking us to rob the bank. Except we're not robbing the bank. We're not taking anything for real. We're just trying to do it in the same way that real attackers would do it. And sometimes this includes physical penetration testing, which means putting on a suit and a tie and walking in with a suitcase. Hello, I have a meeting on the third floor. Could you please let me in? Thank you. Or following people through the open doors. The typical way we do it is that we go to the cigarette smoking area outside the company and start chatting with the people. How are you doing? Hey, did you see the thing on yesterday on TV? It was great. Let's go inside. Yeah, And then you follow people inside. So engineering people or social engineering people to open the doors for you. Another thing which works great is being on the phone. Yes, I can't like talk to you right now because I have a phone discussion, but yeah, let's go inside. Or carrying something big. People will open doors for you. So, Or of course wearing a uh, uniform. I'm the DHL guy. So, Or the Coca-Cola guy coming to fill your, your uh, machines on the third floor. So that's exciting. It's different kind of work, but it's, it's, it's very... Exciting because you get to do stuff that very few people get to do. That sounds really fun, actually. It's it's a separate team within teams here at FCQ. For example, I don't do it. I, I talk with these guys, but I don't do it myself. And I'm always thinking the same thing, that that's what I'd really like to do. But especially here in Finland, I think my face has been burned. If I would try to go and represent myself as a lorry driver, they probably wouldn't believe me. You'd be a bit recognizable. So one question I have is, do you feel like there are any trends you see in the people that you're hiring? Like, how can you tell if someone will be a good fit for this company? Is it that they've received a formal education in computer science versus people who you feel like have just become hackers in their free time or like code as a hobby or they're benevolent hackers? Do you notice any trends in your recruiting practices? We do have a constant lack of talent in this area. We we we're all the time trying to hire people and we can't find the right people and that's a real challenge for us and one of the this is one of the reasons why we started a uh, a university course many years ago and actually now running it in in we, we used to be running it in two different universities i believe we're right now running it on helsinki technical university and then we have a different cooperation with the with helsinki university itself but uh, when we run these courses the main reason why we do that is that we then you know, spot talent among the students. So, for example, the course we run, which is called Malware Analysis and Antivirus Technologies, it takes several weeks. It includes reverse... I mean, we give them real malware samples, like stuff that we we, we would have found, like, just recently, that, that day maybe. And we, we, we give them real samples, and their task is to reverse engineer them and figure out how it works. Um, we, we run... We, we write uh, antivirus scanning engines... Uh, in the course and of course the people who are good at that would be a natural fit for us but we don't require academic credentials for our hires some of the best hires we've ever done have been people who have had no education formal education at all um i remember there's this assembly demo party where which has been running for 20 years where people go every year and write tiny programs which do real-time graphic demos on the screen and and uh, i remember 
recruiting many of our best people from there, like guys who really know computers from the inside and out. One of the guys we hired from there maybe 15 years ago was 15 when we hired him. He's still working here today. He's been working like whenever he was, he was a teenager at this company. So, you know, your, your credentials don't really matter. We just have to find a way to figure out that you've got the talent and you're willing to learn because this field changes all the time. What do you like to do for fun? I, um, I've always been a big fan of games because I started writing games myself when I was much, much younger. And uh, I remember spending the golden years of video games at local video arcades. Uh, the golden years typically are thought to be 1979, 1983. This is the time of you know Pac-Man and Space Invaders and Defender and Pole Position. And at that time, I was uh, you know around 12 or 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, which is perfect time to be in the arcades. And I spent a lot of time in the arcades. And then when I was uh, grown up and working, I realized that those old machines that I used to play when I was a small boy, you can now actually buy them for, uh, you know, 100 bucks. And they're cheap. So in the late 1990s, I started buying old vintage arcade, video arcade machines and uh, collecting them. So I uh, I maintain a small collection of video games and pinballs um, from the golden years. And that's uh, that's much more satisfying to me than playing, you know, any of these modern games that people play on their PlayStations. When you go and have a really good game of uh, Defender or Stargate or Xevious, you know, that's the real deal. So that's how I relax. So that's all my questions. Do you feel like there's anything we haven't touched upon that you would like to touch upon? Ask from me, okay, three, three practical tips for listeners. So the things that I always tell people to do to improve their security, the first thing that I always say is back up your stuff. Make backups of your data. Make backups of your computer, backups of your phone, backups of your tablet, then make a backup of the backup. Then double check that you can actually restore the backup and it actually works. And then make sure that you have an off-site copy, which means if the backup is in your home and your home burns down, do you have a copy of the backup somewhere else? Maybe at your workplace, maybe at your parents' house, I don't know. But make a sh- you know, just make sure you can recover your data. And this is important because our lives are on our devices. That's where our photos is. That's where our memories is. You want to maintain a history of your emails going back 20 years. That this is the way we will remember our past. So backup, that's the thing number one. Thing number two, update and patch. Make sure everything is up to date. Make sure all the operating systems are the latest versions. Make sure all the apps are up to date. Make sure all the applications are up to date on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer. And then, and only then, you start thinking about security software. That's not the first thing to do. And I work for a security software company. But, you know, backing up and patching is the, the thing that you start from. And regarding security software, of course, things like antivirus systems are very important. But nowadays, many people are uh, using things like, you know, I don't know, iPads or iPhones, which don't really require traditional antivirus systems. And what's actually more relevant to them are VPNs, hybrid VPNs, which will then encrypt all your network connections and protect you from many kinds of attacks. So back up your stuff, patch your system, install a good VPN and an antivirus. Awesome. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Thanks so much, Miko. Thank you for listening to the My Data Podcast. 
The My Data Conference takes place in Helsinki, Finland, August 29th to 31st, 2018. Find out more on this year's conference website at mydata2018.org. The show notes and video versions of this podcast are available on the MyData Global Network website at mydata.org. You can contact us via email at podcast at mydata.org or on Twitter at mydata.org. We thank the Metropolitan New York Library Council for letting us record in their studio at 599 11th Avenue in New York City. Music is by David Cutter Music and Joachim Karud. This podcast is copyright MyData 2018. The MyData podcast was produced by me, Gianfranco Cicconi. The host was Molly Schwartz. Video and audio are available for redistribution under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License version 4.0 International. See you next time.